My name is Kate. I am a member of Al-Anon. Hi, y'all. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here and just so honored to get to meet Rochelle. Rochelle is uh, new to our program, and it is just such great hope and so inspiring to see uh, the newcomers come in and just jump right in the middle. And that's what it seems to me that Rochelle has done. Thank you, honey. Jump right in. Um, I just wanted to thank the committee for uh, asking me to come and to be a part of this weekend. And uh, the 30, is this your 30, what? 33rd uh, conference. And I don't know if it's always been here, but this is just such a great facility. And what a great honor it is to uh, be a part of this weekend. Uh, we got here, and I just want to thank Milt last night for his talk. It was just a, a really great talk, and I enjoyed it so much. And uh, just echo what he said about the fruit basket. We've been in it since the moment we walked in the door. Uh, I don't know where people in Kansas get strawberries like that, but I'm going to be looking for them. They were delicious. Uh, you know, we we uh, met Marianne and Roger some months ago, and we've talked on the phone, and Marianne had asked us to come and be a part of this weekend. and. Uh, you know, that's one of the joys of coming to conferences, and that's something that uh, Rochelle and I have talked about, is the joys of coming to conference and meeting people. And, you know, when I first came, you all all looked like you went to the same home group. You all hugged each other. You all laughed. I had no idea that you were from groups all over, but how you got to know each other was by coming to conferences and going to meetings at different groups. And... <clears throat> I just knew that I was never going to be a part of that, and uh, thank goodness I had a sponsor that I talked to about that, and she gave me some directions. She said, just go around and introduce yourself and say that this is your first conference and that you're new, and I did that, and I kept doing that, and as I came back to conferences, I began to recognize some faces, and through doing that, I became a part of, and this weekend has been like a reunion because I have come here and I've seen faces and met people that I have met before. And I don't think there's anything that we do that is much more exciting than that than to see each other again. And someone that's here tonight, uh, this morning, uh, Margaret, I met a number of years ago uh, that she just keeps showing up. And I thought that when we came here, I wondered if Margaret was going to be here. And you know what went through my mind is, no, for goodness sakes, this must be forever away from where she lives. And it is, and sure enough, she showed up. And what a great reunion that was to get to be a part of that. And I just am so glad that you're here. Uh, Joe's going to talk, and, you know, I want to thank him in advance for his talk that he's going to give. And the reason why I want to do that is because I don't want him to have to rebuttal what I'm going to say. <laughs> I really do like to talk after him. You know, Alanon's. Well, some of us are just sicker and thicker than others. And I like to clean up what he's going to say. I still like to do that. <laughs> you know, I have a home group, and my home group is the Big Book Group in Dallas, Texas. And if you're ever in Dallas, we're listed in the phone book. And it's under Joe and Kay Gray. Please feel free to call us, and we'll take you to a meeting and uh, spend time with you. But, you know, after 16 years... I still don't have all these gifts that she read. <laughs> and I want them. I really want them. Uh, I have, I'm a big book Al-Anon, and uh, I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and those promises 
have come true in my life. Do they all stay true all at the same time? No, not really. But the book tells me as long as I work for them, they'll come true, and they have. And I am so grateful for that. Uh, But those gifts, wow. Uh, There were several on there that I'm not participating in. I hate to tell you all. (laughs) It's not that I don't want them. I'm just not participating in them. Uh, But when I talk second, I can clean up what Joe says. And uh, that's just part of of our deal. I came to you all November the 5th, 1986, and as the big book says, I was bankrupt. And I was bankrupt in every way, and you all were a sorry-looking outfit. (laughs) I can remember sitting in those hard chairs thinking, if this is what I'm going to have to do for the rest of my life, I don't know. And I can tell you that I am thrilled to just sit among you today. But I started off, and I did what I was told, what the other people around me said. I had a sister-in-law that... uh, insisted that I get a sponsor, and I did. And uh, I started off uh, working these steps, and the solution for me is in these steps, and that's how I have found out everything that I know about myself. Because until that point, I had shut the door on every area of my life. I blamed, I complained, and just used everything that was in my past as an excuse for how I was. And this program has helped clean that up. I've loved alcoholics all my life, I guess. The very first alcoholic in my life, and I didn't even know he was alcoholic, was my father. Uh, You know, I knew that he drank, and I knew when he drank he did certain things. Uh, If you're the child growing up in a home like that, there are sounds of alcoholism. And alcoholism is a family disease. It doesn't just affect the alcoholic. It does that. But it affects the entire family. And we all get sick together. And we all did get sick together. Uh, I began very early on becoming a watcher. I watched what happened. You know, as four and five and six years old, I wasn't saying very much. I wish it had stayed that way. I didn't walk in the doors not saying very much, I can tell you that. But I also was a listener. And I listened. And I listened intently. And I watched the faces. And I tried to figure out what was going on. And that's a dangerous place for me to be then, and it would be a dangerous place for me to be today. And through working these steps, that has changed for me. Uh, You know, at five or six years old, I knew something was going on. Uh, I really liked what he did. He had fun, and I wanted to be where he was. Uh, He is a big part of my story. And, uh, you know, it was the uncles, and they were all in the front room playing cards, or they were playing dominoes, and oh my goodness, they would laugh and slap their knee and hoot and holler and drink. And I wanted to be in there where they were. And of course, the women shooed me back into the other part of the house. They were all in the kitchen grumbling and complaining and moaning and trying to figure out how to make them stop having fun. You know, isn't that an hour not? By definition, I think. Anyway, uh, some of the things that I watched them and heard them do was they talked about getting the food on the table. Now, I think that's a myth. Do you all ever know where food made an alcoholic quit drinking? I don't. But they said if we could just get them fed, they'd quit drinking and everything's going to be all right. And that seemed to be what they said over and over and over about a lot of different things. Uh, One of the things was 
when my mother decided he had drank too much, that seems to be another Al-Anon thing. We can decide how much the alcoholic should or should not drink. And she would tell him it was time to go home. Now, my dad was a big barrel-chested guy. There was no doubt about that he was a real man's man. And he wasn't going to let a little woman tell him what to do. He'd go home when he got ready, good and ready. There's probably no drunks in this room like that, I'm sure. (laughs) And she would just keep going back to him. And I'd think, why doesn't she shut up? Can't she see that he's not ready to go? He, she is the reason that there is so many problems here. And I'd just watch them and I'd just listen to what they'd say. My little mind would begin to work. And it wasn't very long till he was ready. I'm not sure at that point she was, but he was ready. And we'd go get in the car and we'd start home. And I'd get in that back seat and, you know, over time, this was what happened. It was just my experience, and I didn't know that, that the fight was fixing to start. And it started over how fast he drove. We'd get in the car. We lived about 30 miles from where my family in Dallas lived, and uh, she'd be saying over and over, you're going too fast. And I'd peek up over that back seat, and I'd hear her say, you're going 110. Now, I wish I could tell you I knew that we were going 110, but... I just knew that she kept saying it over and over, and you're going to kill us. And I'd lay down in that back seat, and I'd begin to pray. I grew up going to church, and I loved going to church. Church was a safe place for me, and that's where I had my first encounter, my first relationship with God, and it was a sweet relationship. And I took my all of my worries and all of my fears to God at that point, and I'd lay down in that back seat, and I would pray that she would shut up. Because I was just sure if she'd shut up, everything would be all right. And that he would slow down. But that didn't happen. And they just kept going on. And that is about the disease, the family disease of alcoholism. Uh, You know, as the disease progressed, and it is a progressive disease, and it doesn't matter if it's in the alcoholic or in the Al-Anon, it just gets worse and worse. And down the scale we went. And before long, when my dad began to drink, I began to recognize uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I didn't know that that's what it was then, but that's what the book tells me it is. He would change from being that laughing, fun guy to angry and then sometimes violent. And, you know, later on, as the degree disease progressed, I spent time in emergency rooms watching my mother's face be sewed up from the disease of alcoholism. And as a child, I confused that with the man. The man that I loved, the man that I would rather do anything to get to be with, uh, began to do things that I just didn't recognize. And a word came in my head that it took the 12 steps and forgiveness to change was that my dad was sorry. And I began to think of him as a sorry man. And it was when I came to Elmont that I could understand that he was alcoholic. He was not sorry. And that when I was in those emergency rooms... It was how the disease of alcoholism had affected him and my mother and myself. You know, one of the things that the doctors would ask is, how did this happen? And I'd say, she fell. She fell against the wall. I learned a lie at a very early age. No one ever told me to do that. No one ever said, when we go, you're going to lie about it. I just began to do it. It's just the disease of alcoholism. I don't know how I knew. I just knew to do it. And... That happened over and over and over again. I couldn't understand why she didn't leave. I didn't understand why she stayed. That, too, is the disease of alcoholism. 
you know, you can't live with you and you can't live without you. And that's the way we are until we can find recovery. As time went on, you know, the things that I began to do was to use the skills that I learned early on to lie, cheat, and steal. And I learned to do that very, very early. Uh, In school, it was hard for me to pay attention. And so uh, I'd stay up all night listening and watching for the fight to break out because I was going to protect. I don't know if I was going to protect her or if I was going to protect him. She's pretty vicious. You know, she used to beat him up on a regular basis with the newspaper or anything else. And I'd have to get up and get between them and try to get them in different rooms and in different beds. And uh, in doing that, I was up a lot, an awful lot at night. And in the morning, I'd get up and go to school and, you know, I couldn't pay attention. And I could, I'd go to sleep and I'd worry. You know, worry was a constant companion for me from a very early age. I began to worry about what was going to happen at home. You know, I didn't do very well with school because I began to make bad grades. But right behind that, what I began to do was steal report cards. And I don't know if we have any report card stealers in here, but you just steal a duplicate set. You keep the real ones. You fill out the ones you stole. You take them home. You let your parents sign those. They all looked good. My real ones didn't look so good. I signed them. I took those back to school, and I did that over and over all the way through school. And needless to say, I didn't get a very good education doing that. But I got an education in the disease of alcoholism, that's for sure. Uh, Sometime around 12 or 13 years old, my mother decided that she'd leave my dad. and uh, She took me to my grandmother's. The next day, we returned home. And I got on my bicycle, and I did what... I knew to do. That was to ride down to his office to convince him not to do this, to convince him that something different was going to have to happen. And he said to me something that he'd done much of the time. He said, let's go have uh, lunch. And I thought, oh, goodness, we're going to get into trouble. Now, I'll tell you why I thought we're going to get into trouble, because my mother used to go look for him. I don't know if we have any Al-Anons that look for him, but when he doesn't come home, we want to know where you are. We want to know what you're doing. And most important, we want to know who you're doing it with. (laughs) And so she put me in the car and she would take me down an infamous road in Dallas called Harry Hines. If you're familiar with Dallas, you might know that street. And there's lots of bars up and down it. And uh, my dad would be in one of those bars and she'd pull up out front and she would send me in. And uh, she wouldn't go in, she'd send me in. He was always glad to see me. He'd pull me up on that bar stool next to him and introduce me to his friends. And I was just sure that I was full grown, that they didn't know I was a five or six or seven year old. And we did that over and over. She'd also get mad at me because I'd stay in there too long. And then she'd be mad at both of us. And I wanted to ride home with him, but she wouldn't allow it. So I had to get in the car and listen to her all the way home. And uh, this was something that I knew he and I were going to get in trouble for if we went to lunch this day. But we did leave and go to lunch, and she was at home packing. And, you know, I began doing what I knew I should do, and that was to convince him to go home and talk to her and to stop doing this. I did not want them to get a divorce, and I did not want them to split up. And what I know is that she extracted the very, very best admission out of him she possibly could and that's what we try to do we try to uh, close all the loopholes and to try to figure out how to get you to stop drinking and I as I stand here before you I have not learned that secret Uh, 
the way she did it that day is that she made him promise that he would never drink at home again. And he told her that he wouldn't. And unfortunately, he just never came home after that. And it just escalated, the disease of alcoholism. And I began to do things like uh, lie about where I was going and what I was doing because uh, things just weren't right. I began to uh, live in a fantasy world about someday I'll, someday it was going to be different. I wasn't going to live my life like this. I wasn't going to marry anybody that drank like my dad. And I certainly wasn't ever going to act like my mother. And I can tell you, when I walked in the doors of Al-Anon, I was just like both of them. It was just a mix of both of them. And I didn't even realize it. I closed the door on that growing up time when I was 18 years old. I started dating a young man, and he didn't drink like my dad, but he drank. And uh, I began to know very quickly, know now, that I began to act like her. And it was just a, a marriage made in heaven. Uh, we started dating that summer. I'd grown up with him. I wasn't real crazy about him. He was a bad boy. And I didn't know then that I liked bad boys. It wasn't until I worked in inventory that I realized that every boy I'd ever liked had been a bad boy. But that's just the way it was. And, uh, you know, one time, the reason why I say he was a bad boy is he was a couple of years older than I was. And he had a brand new red-white Corvette. And he drove across my high school campus and shot a universal hand signal to the student body that was standing out front. And I just thought, oh, he is just awful. And, of course, this is who I'm going out with. And I graduated from high school, and with my background, I don't know how. It was just sheerly by lying, cheating, and stealing. And I was enrolled at North Texas University and was ready to move into the dorm. And uh, I did that. And he moved into his apartment. He was old enough to have an apartment. And, uh, you know, I just knew that everything was going to all work out for me. And it wasn't very long until I found out that I was pregnant and we got married. And in that order. And uh, I began to be scared to death. I wasn't going to go home and tell my family that that's what I had done. They wanted me to get my education. They wanted me to do something with my life. And I wanted that too. And I knew that had come to an end. So I was just going to not tell anybody. You know, isn't that how we are? We just won't mention it to a soul. If it had been left up to me, I would have never told anybody. I would have never told anybody until today if it had been left up to me. He wasn't going to hear of it. He thought I should move into that apartment with him and out of that dorm. And he said, we've got to go home and tell your parents. And we did on a Wednesday. And I remember it as clear as if it was yesterday. Uh, he picked me up from that last class on Wednesday. And he said, we're going to Dallas and tell your folks. And I thought, oh, dear God, there'll be a death certainly out of this and uh, we did we went to Dallas and my mother was at home and my dad came home and my dad had not been drinking that day and we told them that we had gotten married and my dad looked at me and said something that for the next 10 years I absolutely tried to live down he said I hope you have enough sense to be married and that day and the day I walked out of that marriage 10 years later I did not have enough sense to be married not at all and out of that marriage came two children and the disease of alcoholism and uh, me wanting to know where he'd been and what he'd been doing and who he'd been doing it with. And, you know, he said the same things my dad said. He'd never been anywhere. He'd never been doing anything. and He'd never been with anybody. And I wanted to know why he had lipstick on his clothes. If you haven't been with anybody, how come you've got lipstick on your clothes? You know, the disease of alcoholism was stealing everything out of that marriage already. Those two children were born, and I was crazy. I was following him, checking the speedometer on the, uh, the odometer on the car, um, 
check marking the tires. I've seen the police do that in parking spaces, mark the back of the tires with chalk. Uh, you know, checking his clothes, checking credit cards, and I spent 10 years of doing that, staying up late at night trying to figure this out, trying to figure out what to do just one step quicker, one step sooner so that I could get this figured out. And I was dealing with something that I would never be able to figure out, the family disease of alcoholism, insane and crazy. And I was working as hard as I could, as fast as I could to figure it out. Uh, You know, I knew pretty early on that there were other women in his life. And I'd like to sit here and tell you that, uh, you know, I was just blameless and all that. I just was a a wife that just cherished this husband and uh, never did a thing. But it wasn't very long until I was doing the same thing that he was doing and uh, gave away my dignity and my self-respect bit by bit to the disease of alcoholism. The things that I had been taught growing up and I was taught morals and principles growing up. You know, sometimes out of that disease of alcoholism, we might not think it's there with our parents. But it was. And I had given all those away. By the end of that marriage, you know, I'm one of those Alamans that can't let one go until I have another one right here. And that's exactly where I was. I had another one already. And that marriage began to just fall apart, completely fall apart. We separated and uh, that about year number nine we separated and what had happened was I came home one night it was about nine o'clock and opened that front door and walked in and I don't even know if you're an Al-Anon of my type you know if somebody's been in your house you know if that glass in the sink wasn't there when you left you know if that towel was moved in that bathroom you know if that soap had been used and there's some water spots on the cabinet. If you're an Alamon on my type, there should be some head shaking out there. <laughs> and I walked in that night and there had been someone in my house, but they weren't there that I could tell. And in a few minutes, he walked through the back door and the, the fight began. And he and I had been doing this since day one. You know, black eyes and uh, broken furniture. And, you know, I'd made a decision a long time ago that I was never going to be hit like my mother. And I wasn't. You know, when there were stitches to be done, he was the one that went to the emergency room. I was a fierce competitor. I'm glad I didn't have a gun. If I'd have had a gun, I'm sure that you'd have had another speaker because I had that much anger and rage. And this particular night, the fight began, and I don't know how these fights began. You all may know. <clears throat> where, have you, where were you going? I was just leaving. I was scared. I thought someone was in the house. And from there... We dug up every old bone, every argument we'd ever had, cast it about, rediscussed it, got worse about it, had bigger things to say about it, worse things to say about it, and bit by bit, my clothing began to disappear. He began to rip just one piece right after the other. And the next thing I knew, I was standing there butt naked, and he walked back into our game room, and I heard the gun cabinet open. And I remember as just like standing here today. I remember standing at my kitchen cabinet and saying that prayer. I thought it was the prayer. God, if you'll get me out of this, I won't ever do this again. And I left that front door butt naked and ran down that street and found a flower bed and jumped in it and laid there for about two or three hours while he walked with that double-barrel shotgun up and down that street looking for me. Thank God he didn't find me. He finally wore out and went in, and I knocked on that lady's door. And this is a disease of alcoholism. I call my aunt and uncle. 
They come and get me. I'm in an attorney's office the next day. I file for divorce. This is the disease of alcoholism. Two weeks later, we're in the attorney's office, me with my attorney, him with his attorney. He looks at the two attorneys and says, I'd like to talk to her by herself. This is my disease of alcoholism. I looked up and I said, yes. Those two attorneys looked at me like I had lost my mind. And I had, one more time, to the disease of alcoholism. We went into a conference room and he slid a pretty piece of jewelry over to me and he said those magic words. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. I love you. And I'm sorry. And I don't know what happened. And that won't ever happen again. And I just knew that that was what it was. That it was over. I believed that as I had been believing it over and over each and every time. This time wasn't any different, but I believed it. That's the disease of alcoholism. We walked out of that office. We went on that trip. I wore that piece of pretty jewelry. <clears throat> just as I had been doing all those other fights, and just as I did the ones the next year, I sold myself for a piece of jewelry and another trip and a promise that he loved me. And I believed he loved me the very best he could, but he loved alcohol better. And he gave up that family for alcohol. He gave up his children, and I gave it up too. And I took off. You know, I had this feeling that I'd been missing out, and I began to do things that I never thought I would do. Uh, leave my children, get up in the middle of the night, or not come in at all and tell them the next morning I'd gone for bread. I began to live a lie that I had so much shame and so much guilt for that I could, could hardly look myself in the mirror. I was uh, about three years single and acting like it over in Fort Worth at the Colonial Golf Tournament. And I looked up and all the way across the room was this tall, good-looking blonde. Now, I, one of the things that I've learned since I've been here is I like bad boys and pretty packages. <laughs> and there was a really pretty package sitting across the room. Now, he, there was only one thing wrong with the whole thing is that he had this ugly blonde sitting in his lap. <laughs> now, I knew that you shouldn't do that at the country club. Now, if it had been some of those other places that we hung out, of course we did that, but not at the country club. You've got to have some class if you're at the country club, right? Well, class be darned, here he is, just a little bit later, sitting at my table, didn't even give that another thought, that he didn't have any class. He asked for my phone number, and I said no. And it started. Don't know what it is. It started. It's that little twinkle. It's that little electricity. It's that little excitement that begins when you see the person that kind of is interesting to you. And he wanted my phone number, and I said no. Guys like you are too hard to handle. And they are. Trust me, they are. And we just did that back and forth, and he kept asking me for my phone number, and my friend that I was sitting there with finally gave him my phone number, and then I began to ask him for the phone number back. Y'all know the drill. I got up to go to the restroom, and he followed me, and he said, I want to take you out. And I said, well, big boy, if you want to take me out, how about tonight? And he just said the thing that sealed the deal. And it was this. He said, I have a date tonight. And I wouldn't break a date with her to go with you, but I wouldn't break a date with you to go with her. And I thought, my God, he has character. 
He did then and he does now. He has character, all right. He is a character. <laughs> so we just started off, and y'all know how it is. It's just that, that little thing that we do. I can't explain it. It's one of the most exciting. I, I feel alive when I'm doing it. I just feel alive. And uh, I did something that I've been doing for a while. He just moved right in with me. I was not raised that way. You know, my dad put a box of vegetables from his garden on my front porch that said decay in question mark. I never believed that anything I did affected anybody else. He never knew who was going to be there. My dad didn't. And I know today how it broke my father's heart to watch the daughter that he loved do the things that I did. And see, I climbed right behind. What I'm doing never hurt a soul. Never hurt a soul. I hurt my kids, I hurt my family, I hurt people all along the way. But my denial was that I wasn't hurting a soul. Joe moved in and he had three kids and I had two. We just shuffled them together like a double deck of cards. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we thought was, uh, we're just going to do this differently. Now, there was no no identification of that. We were just going to do it different than we had done it. And we did all right. Uh, one of the things that we did different is that he didn't leave me at home. And boy, I liked that. Every place he went, he wanted me to go with him. And I went with him. On a moment's notice, if he said, we're going, I was up and dressed and ready to go. I was not going to stay at home. And my idea of taking care of these kids was to give them all $20 apiece and tell them to look for us when you saw us coming. And I'm telling you, alcoholism broke out in every room in the house. And I was one busy person many nights. It was nothing for me to put 250 or 300 miles on a car looking for him. You know, I grew up looking for that daddy. I went on to marry and look for him. And now I'm looking for them. And we had three or four of them active all at the same time. And I was driving all over everywhere looking for them, trying to figure out where they were, who they were with, and what they were doing. And I was crazier than I had ever been in my entire life. Uh... I wasn't looking at Joe, and I know Joe is grateful for that today. He really is grateful for that. Uh, My kids used to call me Dickless Tracy. (laughs) I looked everywhere. I went through all of their stuff. I checked under the mattresses. They had lock boxes that had stuff in it. I'd break into their lock boxes. I was like an insane person. The disease of alcoholism had made me crazy. And I was the main participator in it. Uh, it was all just coming to an end, and I didn't even know it. Um, November, the beginning days of November of 1986, I called my mother in law, and I said, just talking to her, and she burst into tears. Uh, Joe's baby sister had been locked up in a psychiatric ward and this was about the third or fourth time and my mother-in-law was just worn out she had her kids and I said if you'll just give us some time and let us get there we'll see if we can't figure this out Joe and I have been married about 10 years and you know what's he going to say no we're not going to go see about my baby sister he said yeah let's go and I packed my bags and laying in the bottom of my closet was a round bronze looking chip I picked it up and I looked at it I didn't know what it was. I didn't know where it came from. I didn't know what it signified. I recognized the serenity prayer on one side, and on the other side there was a circle and triangle and a blank spot where the AA's year is. I didn't even know it was an AA chip. 
didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, certainly had never even heard the word Al-Anon. But I put that in my pocket because it had the serenity prayer on it. It had hung in my family's home all my growing up life. I wish I could tell you that I'd understood it, but I didn't. But I put it in my pocket, and over the next two or three days, every time I felt like I was losing more control, I'd reach down and I'd feel of that little coin in my pocket. And over the next two or three days, that sister-in-law came up from Austin, Texas, that had been in the program for about five years. I had called her saying, I think Jeannie's dying. She said, she is. She's being treated for the wrong thing. She's alcoholic. And sure enough, that's what it was. We took her AMA against medical advice out of that psychiatric hospital, and she went into a treatment for her alcoholism. And over the next three days, that sister-in-law that had about five years sober, sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, so many times talks to the family about alcoholism, and I am so grateful for that. Isn't that the most beautiful thing? that a sober member of AA can talk to the family members about alcoholism. And that's what she did. She talked about how it was for her. And I began to thaw just a little bit. I began to, my mind began to open. I can't tell you that I understood anything, but it began to open just a little bit. We came back to Dallas, and she and I went to an Al-Anon meeting, and the next morning I got up and flew to Austin. And that daughter of mine had called and said that she uh, was furious with me because we were helping Joe's sister. That I knew that she was in trouble. I knew that she was in trouble. But I didn't know. How do you fix something? How do you address something that you don't know what it is? We'd been trying to fix lots of things. We'd never entertain the idea that it was alcoholism. Not one time. And I said, I think I understand a little bit about what's wrong with all of us. And so I flew to Austin and went to her apartment and I said, you know, talk, talk to her about Jeannie and I said, you know, I think that what we're dealing with is alcoholism. Are you willing to go get help? And of course she said no. She only had 18 days of the first semester of her senior year to finish and she wasn't willing to do anything but what she wanted to do. And I said, okay, God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. The miracles were happening in my life then and I couldn't recognize them. I said, okay, and I stood up. She said, sit down. And over the next about an hour, she was packed and ready to go back to Dallas. And that night, she went into the hospital for her alcoholism. Within about 10 days, two of our sons came to us and said, if you think she's got problems, maybe you ought to look at us. (laughs) Now, there was a little theft ring in our neighborhood. We never realized it was coming from our house. I knew that they had a lot of CBs. This was back in the days of CBs. And if you had a radar detector stolen out of your car, even in Kansas, I'm going to go ahead and apologize. It was probably my kid. (laughs) Alcoholism was everywhere in our house, and we didn't even know it. And uh, Those kids went into the hospital for their alcoholism just shortly after that. And my life, the life that I had spent years being in a knot about, just fell apart. I thought that my world was over. I absolutely felt so out of control. And I began to do the things that I heard the AA say. They said go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I was going to one to three meetings a day, every single day, seven days a week. The only place that I could be okay was sitting in an Al-Anon meeting. And I couldn't understand what those women said. I couldn't understand what they were doing. You know, there were some that had 10 years. And 
I could see that they smiled. You know, one thing about us early on is that we have one personality or less. We we talk about the Al-Anons having one personality and never smile, you know. We just don't have a sense of humor when we walk in the door. And that's where I was. This was serious. And I, my kids were dying with this disease, and I, I wanted help. And I'd say to these women, I, I need what that one has that has 10 years. And they were so kind to me. They'd say things like, oh, honey, you can have that. Don't die and come back. And I'd think, Those, they're mean. What do they mean, don't die and come back? Thank God they told me that, just to keep coming back, because that's how I got this thing, one day at a time, just one day at a time. That sister-in-law started telling me to get a sponsor, and I did. I got a sponsor, and thank God that she was a sponsor that believes in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she put me in those steps, and she didn't let me up. You know, she had me make commitments. The first commitment she had me make was a phone call. I called her every day. We didn't have a lifetime to get to know each other. We had to get to know each other as soon as we could and to establish that line between us, and that's what happened. And she put me off in those steps, and I wish I could stand up here and tell you that I knew that my life had changed. I didn't know that in the middle of it, in the beginning of it. But as things began to happen, people around me began to notice. My kids were the first ones. They all came out of treatment, and they did not like what they found when they got home. (laughs) I had learned to say some things that I had never said with any um, thing behind it. The word no. I'd never said no to them a minute. I always just said no and then move it down a notch. I don't know if there's any in here that just keep moving it down a notch. Just another notch. And I said no and could mean it. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I started, like I say, going to those meetings. Now, Joe didn't go to meetings, and I'm not here to tell his story, but he just, his husband wasn't drunk. And I thought, I'm married to somebody that is brain dead. He doesn't even have a husband. Why is he saying his husband isn't drunk? He has drunk kids. Why isn't he going to Al-Anon? Well, he didn't go to Al-Anon. He laid on our bed and watched the ball games, anything that had a little round ball in it. There's probably nobody in here that does that. Golf, football, basketball, baseball, soccer, didn't matter. I couldn't imagine why he wasn't going. More would have been revealed, uh, and that's his story. But I, I stayed in Alamon, and I got in the middle of it, and that's what my sponsor told me that I had to do. I took commitments. You know, the very first commitment that I had was greeter at our group, and every meeting I was there to greet, and then it was literature. I've been doing that ever since. Some 16 years later, I still take commitments. I still am a, a part of my group just like I was when I first came in. She told me that I would never get to the place where I could stop doing that, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, as I began to change, I began to get off of Joe's back. And, you know, one afternoon, one evening, I'd been to a meeting, and I started down the hall, came in the house, and started down the hall, and he met me, and he had that finger up, and he said, um, you don't make me happy anymore. We don't even have a marriage. And, you know, those meetings, one right after the other, I said something to him that I didn't even realize was going to change the course of our lives. I said, I'm not responsible for your happiness. And I just walked right on. He says it made him mad. To be honest, I didn't even notice. Uh, He started going to meetings. He started going to Al-Anon meetings. And 
uh, you know, I'm going to let you let him tell you about all that. But our life began to change from that point on. And uh, since we've been here, we've had some of the, the greatest opportunities of our lives, and that is to get to meet you guys, to get to sit in a fellowship of men and women, and to have it grow up around us, and to watch the miracles, to watch the new ones come in, and watch the lights come on in their eyes, and watch the program of either Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon begin to work in our lives. I go to three meetings a week, just like I did when I came in, two Al-Anon and one Open AA. Open AA has given me more than I can ever say thank you for. I get to listen to sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. It has changed my life. Our children, our children, I wish I could tell you, have all just come out of treatment and just joined the happy world of recovery. They've not. They've all done different things. They've all come in at different points and left at different points. And, you know, right now I can tell you I don't know who's drinking and who's not. And for me, that is the program of Al-Anon. It really is not any of my business what they're doing. I have to let go. And that has been one of the hardest things for me to ever do. I've not let go pretty. It's always had scratch marks all over it. You know, uh, but I've had to let go. And the disease of alcoholism is rearing its ugly head in our grandchildren now. You know, we have a beautiful 20-year-old granddaughter that has been dealing with alcoholism. And we have the, well, I just hope alcohol doesn't ever get splashed on him. He's 13. Well, he'll be 13 in just a few days. And I'm telling you, he is a double handful. And he likes to start fires. (laughs) And he doesn't know why. He just feels uncomfortable, he'll tell you. He just doesn't know what it is. He's restless. He's irritable. And he's uncomfortable. And I don't know what all that means, but we're saving him a seat. I know that's for sure. (laughs) We've got seven grandkids out of those five kids. And, you know, they've all been divorcing and remarrying and having children. We have a new grandbaby on the way in, in June. Our oldest daughter is bringing us another grandbaby. And we are so excited about that. And we spend time with those kids. We only have one. It's not that we don't speak to him. He doesn't speak to us. And we're just sitting waiting and welcoming him back home anytime he wants to come. The disease of alcoholism is a destroyer. And I have to remember that. It's not the alcoholic that destroys. It's not the Al-Anon that destroys. It's the disease of alcoholism that is in each and every one of us. My life is a gift from God. What I do with that life is my gift to him. I want you to know how much I love you and thank you so very much for asking me to come and be a part of this weekend. Thank you.